Good morning to each one. Greetings in our Master's name. I very much enjoyed our week of revivals. So throughout the week, I uh, wonder what, what do you preach about after a week of revivals? I was again reminded the need of, during revivals, the need of having daily victory in our Christian lives. So this morning, I want to look at this thing of circumcision, circumcision of the heart. For introduction, I invite you to turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11. Ezekiel comes right after Jeremiah. few verses there. I'm going to read verses 17 to 21. Therefore say, Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they shall come thither, and they shall take away all the detestable things thereof, and all the abominations thereof from thence. And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them an heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, saith the Lord God." So God promises that Israel, Israel's time of exile, would be a time of cleansing, a time to take away their previous devotion to idols. This was fulfilled in history. The people of Israel did not have the same problem with the idols of the nations after the exile as they did before. It says, then I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them. You know, as God promised his work of restoration, he began to speak in terms associated with his greater work of restoration in the new covenant. These promises are later reported, later repeated by Ezekiel and spoken of specifically as a covenant. Here in Ezekiel 11, we see several features of that new covenant. Verse 19 Israel gathered together again, one heart. Also in verse 19, that is a heart not divided between God and idols. The one heart is called a new spirit, a spiritual transformation, a new spirit and give them a heart of flesh. In verse 20, we have the law written on the heart that they may walk in my statutes. We also see a special relationship with God that they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That they may walk in my statutes. The holiness of their lives shall prove the work of God upon their hearts. Their conduct shall show that they are my people. For the sermon text, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. Titled the message this morning, Circumcision of the Heart. I'm going to read verses 9 to 15. 
Colossians 2. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. I want us to notice the word, the phrase, in him. I'm going to go back up to verse 6 and point a few of those out. Verse 6 of Colossians 2. As ye have therefore received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now I want to notice the phrase with him, verse 12, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. We walk in Him. We are rooted in Him. Fullness of deity dwells in Him. We are filled in Him. We are circumcised in Him. We are buried with Him. We are raised with Him. We are alive with Him. And in Him, He has triumphed. When we break it down, we get this idea that Paul is focusing his attention in these verses to the person of Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all in Him. It's all with Him. Everything He has done, it's all about Him. Our very existence is found in Him. In the book of Acts, Paul was preaching about Jesus. He said, for in Him we live and move and have our being. It's all in Him. Our very existence is because of Him. Jesus Christ. The Bible also tells us, if you have not the Son, you have not the Father. It's all centered on the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 9, we see why. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The NIV says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. It's all centered on Him because the fullness of deity dwells in Him in bodily form. This word Godhead that is translated deity... This is the only place in the New Testament that we have this word used in this specific form. It means that the very essence 
of God is found bodily, meaning in bodily form, in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything of what God is, is found in Jesus Christ. When we look at Jesus, that is what we find in Him. The fullness of who and what God is in the person of Jesus. And this refutes the Colossian heresy, which denied Jesus' full deity and that He possessed a body that could die and make atonement for sin. So let's think about this for a moment. Why, why does Paul say this? In chapter 1, he already said, he already told us that Jesus is God. He uses it here because he is using it as a foundation for his next statement, which we have in verse 10. And you are complete in him. And you have been given fullness of Christ in the NIV. That's why Paul establishes the fact that all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus bodily. Because he is about to make a statement about you in order to tell you that you have the fullness in you. He has made you full. He establishes the fact that Jesus possesses the fullness of God. The only way that someone can receive this fullness it is if something or someone transfers or imparts that fullness to you, but they have to possess it first. The word fullness means completeness, and you are complete in Him. This can only be true because Jesus is true. If He were not God, He would be complete. We couldn't be complete in Him. Anything that says we are not complete in Him also takes away from the deity of Christ. So it begins with the fact, begins by establishing the fact that the fullness, the completeness of deity dwells in the person of Jesus Christ in bodily form. You have been given fullness in Christ. It's the idea that you have been made complete. You are filled by Him. Paul says, I have been made complete. We are complete in Christ. Do you feel complete? I often feel inadequate or incomplete. We know that we are inadequate from a human standpoint. We have weaknesses. We mess up. And I have daily challenges. Then you read these verses that tell us you are complete in Christ. We need to hear. It requires us to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying. But to hear it and to understand that he is speaking a different language. He's talking about faith. The language of faith. There are many languages in the world. Some languages are easier to learn than others. One of the hardest to learn, I believe, is the language of faith. That's why he's saying here when he tells us, you and I, you are complete. Do you believe it? You are complete. You have fullness in Christ. 
Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. More than conquerors. Do we believe our feelings over the Word of God? Do my feelings dictate my, my belief instead of just accepting what the Word of God says? Hear the word spoken in the language of faith. Do we sometimes listen to our own language of doubt? There are many statements spoken in the language of faith here in Colossians 2. Verse 11, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision was an Old Testament rite that was performed on Jewish males the eighth day after they were born. It was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and that eventually, through the rest of the Jewish people, it was something they did physically. And it was also a picture of what God would do to his children in the future. Most of the Colossians were Gentiles who had never been physically circumcised. Paul assured them that they were indeed circumcised in a spiritual sense, which is even more important than physical circumcision. Under the Old Covenant, there was a literal cutting away of the flesh. Under the New Covenant, there is a spiritual cutting away of the flesh. Ephesians describes it as putting off the old man, the old sinful nature, cutting away the flesh, as it were. The gospel of Christ required heart surgery, the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision was a type and shadow. It pointed to a greater spiritual reality that was to come. Paul says our circumcision was done without hands. It is done spiritually. There is a reality to it that goes beyond the physical. The idea of circumcision of the heart is found in Romans 2, verse 29. It refers to having a pure heart separated unto God. Let's turn there. Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 25 to 29. Romans 2, verse 25. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee? Who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. He is saying Jew, Jewish circumcision is only an outward sign of being set apart to God. However, if the heart is sinful... 
then physical circumcision is of no avail. A circumcised body and a sinful heart are at odds with each other. Paul focuses on the condition of the heart, using circumcision as a metaphor. He says that only the Holy Spirit can purify a heart and set us apart to God. Ultimately, circumcision cannot make a person right with God. The law is not enough. A person's heart must change. Paul calls this change circumcision of the heart. God wants more from his people than just external conformity to a set of rules. He has always wanted them to possess a heart of love, a heart to love, a heart to know and follow him. Even in the Old Testament, God's priority was a spiritual circumcision of the heart. Jeremiah 4.4, 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Physical circumcision does not make one a child of God. Faith does. Both Old and New Testament focus on the need for repentance and inward change in order to be right with God. In Christ, the law has been fulfilled. Through Him, a person can be made right with God and receive eternal life. The Apostle Paul said, True circumcision is a matter of the heart, performed by the Spirit of God. Verse 11, the Greek word for putting off, denotes both stripping away Stripping off and casting away. It's putting off the old man, the evil, and the corrupt. The moral flesh that we were all born with. To cut it off, to remove it. It says the flesh has been cut away. This is in the past tense. The circumcision here in view is in the spiritual, not the physical. Where the ruling powers of the believer's flesh or sinful nature is broken or removed by Christ. Do we believe it? When a Christian struggles to get victory over an area of sin in their life, and they say, I just can't do it. When they believe what they are saying, they say, I can't, and they remain defeated because they believe themselves to be defeated. Rather than hearing in faith and knowing that they have been set free, they believe that they are still slaves. So what does the Bible tell us the answer? Is the answer to the sin that exerts itself and tries to make us captives. Romans 6, verse 11 says, Likewise you also... Wrecking yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word that is key here is reckon. It means to think or conclude that something is in fact true. You need to conclude that it is true, that you are dead to sin. 
Brothers and sisters, do we understand the language of faith? This is a work that has to be done. Do you believe it? Do we embrace it? Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. I want to read some verses there. Romans 6, 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now I want to look at verse 12 in Colossians. It talks about buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. We have been buried with Christ in baptism. Not every time that Paul uses the word baptism is he referring to water baptism. Here he talks about spiritual baptism, where Christ brings the believer into an intimate relationship with himself and with his people, the church, through the Holy Spirit. Water baptism is not the mechanism by which we are buried in Christ or the process in which we are released from our sin. It's the picture of the mechanism. Water baptism is the picture. It's not the reality. It's an outward expression of a changed heart. The reality is Jesus and what he did for you on the cross and you are buried with him by faith. We put our faith in the finished work. We have been buried with him in baptism. We are immersed into his death. Why is that important? We have been immersed into his death because now we know that the old man is dead. We know the old man is dead because we joined Christ in his death and the old man is now buried. It says, in which you were also, you also were raised from him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. It says, we were raised with him, past tense. We know there is a resurrection coming in the future, but there is one that has already happened. You have already been raised with Christ. When you came to Christ and confessed your sin, 
and embraced what he did on the cross. You died and were buried. And then were raised again to a new life. That's why it is completely inconsistent for you and me to live the old life. Because you have now been raised to life. It has already it has already happened. Embrace it and live in victory. You are raised with him. How were you raised? Through faith. Ephesians 1 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places? Acts 2.24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be healed by it. Faith activates the reality of what Christ has done for us. I wonder if sometimes the reason people are defeated in sin is because they have not understood the reality of what Jesus did for them, and by faith activated that reality. And you, being dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. We see here that before we came to Christ, we were dead. The word dead here means a lifeless corpse. Of all the words that describe us prior to coming to Christ, this is one of the strongest. Before coming to Christ, you and I were a lifeless corpse in the spiritual sense of connecting to God and understanding the things of God. Not only were we in need of forgiveness, we also needed to be made alive. We needed to be regenerated. We were like those lifeless, dead bones that we read about in the Old Testament. And we can never be made alive apart from Jesus Christ. Verse 14 tells us how he did it. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Here Paul explains to us how we were made alive. You don't make yourself alive. He makes you alive. By blotting out, or we could say by canceling out the record of debt. It says it was against us. Having wiped it out. Wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. A standard of holiness that you and I could not live up to. It created for us this record of debt that we could not pay. Not that we ever could live up to God's holiness. He had to show us how unable we were to stand up to His holiness. How did He do that? He gave us the law. It was given to show us how much we needed forgiveness and how unable we are to attain the holiness of God on our own. Jesus canceled our debt. He also covered all the legal demands that stood against us. 
He didn't do it through negotiations of the legal process. He stepped up and paid it all himself. It says that he nailed it to his cross. Verse 14, nailing it to his cross. Have you ever had a debt paid for by someone else? Well, you have. Jesus did that for me. Paul reminds us here that Jesus canceled our debt. He covered all legal demands that stood against us. And in verse 15, he says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He took away their ability to demand repayment. He took away the ability of those rulers and authorities to come and condemn you and accuse you and demand repayment from you because it has been repaid. It says he even put the authorities to shame, to open shame by triumphing over them in it. He made a public spectacle of them. Now that the authorities were told to back off, who is going to bring any charges against us? Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also written, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He's not going to do it. He is not accusing. He is interceding on our behalf. One of Satan's effective devices is to convince those whose debt had been wiped out that they still owe a debt. That they still have a balance due. And that they need to take care of it. When you and I sin... We must confess it and seek forgiveness for whatever it is that has caused us to stumble. Jesus has dealt with them once and for all on the cross. Our debt is paid in full. Satan would have us to focus on our past sin. If he can do that, he can cause us to doubt that your debt has been paid. So in closing, the Apostle John records a verse for us. John chapter 19, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The word finished is the same as paid in full. It is done. The transaction is complete. That is something we have to hang on to when Satan comes to condemn. What does Romans 8.1 tell us? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Outside of Christ, there is plenty of condemnation. But if you are in Christ Jesus today, it doesn't exist because your debt has been paid in full. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So may we each experience that victory that can only be found in Christ. Let's have a song.